The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Like we always do at this time of the day on Fridays, we are very lucky to have with us Joe Mysack, editor of the Bloomberg Brief that focuses on the municipal bond market. Uh, and he is, of course, here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Joe, we have to start with Puerto Rico uh, for a lot of reasons. First of all, the uh, disaster uh, that is the aftermath of Hurricane Maria is ongoing. And there are still a lot of questions about how the island will get the aid it needs to even begin to get people potable water and the electricity on, let alone rebuild. I want to start, though. Bondholders took this week uh, as an opportunity to extend or offer a $1 billion dip loan, right? This is basically debtors in possession. It's basically a bankruptcy tool, financing tool. They offered to give Puerto Rico a $1 billion loan in return for um, a deal that they had proposed previously. Basically, they're going to be first in line uh, to get repaid. Can you give us a sense of what your take on this offer was? Well, you got to hand it to them. Uh, this is what some creditors do. They are they have a they're a very sharp elbowed bunch, and they want to get everybody uh, out of the way. Um, but I'll tell you what we're looking at now. You know, be, before this, we were looking at the at the best bonds, the most highly secured bonds, at uh, recoveries of between sixty five and. 80 cents in the dollar. You're talking and, about these are the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority uh, bonds, Puerto right? Puerto Rico GEOs, Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority bonds, COFINA's sales tax, the the, the best of the bunch. Uh, we were talking about, you know, pretty, th- those kind of, of recoveries. And with the storm, uh, Ted Hampton did a report this week of Moody's. And, uh, uh, you know, he said, well, it could very well be that you're going to, the storm's impact will have an impact on those recoveries, even less. So you're not going to have 15 cent uh, haircuts like the uh, this this loan program was uh, positing. You know, uh, Joe, I just want to mention also to all of our listeners that we are awaiting comments from President Donald Trump. He will be pushing for his tax reform proposal and uh, giving a speech in front of the National Association of Manufacturers in Washington, D.C. We will bring you, of course, uh, the important highlights. Uh, you know, Joe, one of the things I want to ask you about has to do with the bankruptcy, because I understand that the Title III bankruptcy case, there's an omnibus hearing that was originally scheduled, and it was scheduled, I believe, uh, for like yesterday, but uh, district uh, U.S. District Court uh, judge in the Southern District of New York, Laura Taylor Swain, um, indefinitely postponed the hearing. Uh, is that going to affect any of the reconstruction or indeed any of the financial issues that Puerto Rico is facing? 
I think that was a uh, a sort of uh, postponement out of uh, almost good taste. Uh, you know, with such devastation on the island and the rescue taking place, uh, a few weeks here and there aren't really going to, it's, it's, that's not going to have much of an impact. Joe, my sense is, given the fact that there are so many problems even distributing goods to people in Puerto Rico from the ports, uh, my sense is that the government is kind of in disarray, just trying to get their handle around the problem. When do you think that they will be uh, more together and able to tackle uh, both the island's financial issues as well as the uh, debt negotiations once again? Well, the debt negotiations were probably talking, you know, well into October before we sit down again and start, you know, hashing that out. Um, but as far as the reconstruction of the island is going, there are a lot of people who have been sent to the island. There's a lot of material already there that hasn't been unloaded. And I thought, uh, gosh, there was a story this week and it said they were having difficulties delivering a lot of the material that's been sent because there was a lack of drivers. And I, I haven't heard or seen any estimates of how many people left the island uh, before the storm or with the storm. And I would suspect it's quite a lot because they said, you know, if we were having a problem just finding drivers to, you know, deliver the stuff. Joe, uh, can I just follow up, though, on this, the legal proceedings for just a second? Because uh, the president of the Puerto Rico House uh, asked the Oversight Board to suspend all legal proceedings against the Puerto Rican government. And there's even been a proposal that maybe they should just stop enforcing the plan's measures for at least a year, maybe even over the next five years. Is that likely? I would find that extremely unlikely. Uh, the the road to recovery is going um, is going to um, uh, uh, be paved, if you will, with the financial plan. And yeah, but why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they the grant debt. them? Why wouldn't they grant them a postponement? You've got a situation where, as you just described, no one even really knows the extent of the damage, except that it is catastrophic. Why wouldn't there be a sympathetic ear to the postponement of an austerity plan at a time when the island commonwealth is trying to rebuild? Well, you know, they the island is getting assistance uh, right now. So it's not as though getting a recovery plan in place, which is what the board is trying to do, uh, is going to somehow handicap them. All right, let's turn our attention now to education. Everyone wants it, and particularly in developing nations and in China. And here to help us understand more about it is Ping Wei. He is the chief financial officer of RYB Education, and uh, he's going to tell us a little bit about the company's initial public offering. It uh, priced uh, on September the 27th, on yesterday. Uh, I beg your pardon, on Wednesday. Ping, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me. Great. You know, could you just describe for us the demand? Because people may not understand the demand and the, the, the perceived necessity of getting a great education and scoring well on tests in China. 
Well, Chinese traditionally really emphasizes a lot on education, and thanks to that, I think, and, uh, you know, we uh, as long as we can uh, get the uh, high-quality education, we grab those. And uh, uh, RYB Education is an early childhood education company based in China. We provide an actual training for children aging six months to six years old through our plan learn centers. And then we provide kindergarten and preschool services to children from two years to six years old. And, uh, uh, you know, a kindergarten and preschool is a necessity worldwide, not just in China, but in China particularly so for private sector because we don't have a sufficient public infrastructure unlike that in the U.S. So in China, about half of all kindergarten and preschool services are actually private-owned. Um, RYB is the largest largest one in terms of uh, revenue, both on our uh, PLC business, plan learn center business, and our kindergarten side. Um, so in terms of why it's a necessity, I would guess um, uh, the infrastructure side and the uh, demand for high-quality education side, I think there's another thing. That is, you know, with the evolution of the one-child policy in China, the birth rate has uh, increased quite significantly. Give you some numbers. In 2015, there were about 16.6 uh, million kids born in China. By 2016, the first year after the two children policy uh, was adopted, the birth rate went up to 17.9 million kids in the year. And there's another number that points to an even higher number of 18.6 million with so many children yeah. born. The need for childhood, for early childhood education also increased quite dramatically. Yeah. Um, you know, Ping, it strikes me, it strikes me as interesting that you chose to do your initial public offering in the United States. There's been a lot of questions about uh, why there haven't been more IPOs in the U.S. What drew you to uh, this market to raise money? Yeah, well, in fact, if you look to uh, the U.S. side, there are a few uh, pretty good Chinese names here, New Oriental, Tao Education. Both are sort of really high-quality education companies uh, from China. We really like the U.S. market in a few uh, reasons. One is the uh, the U.S. market investors are fairly sophisticated and well-educated. Two is the U.S. market has very um, sort of uh, a clear and transparent rules, and, uh, which uh, creates a a sort of a, a level play field for all companies. So companies only need to focus on doing the right things for shareholders in creating value and not having to worry too much about other things. And thirdly, it's actually a good branding and good sort of an, uh, self-governance per se for Chinese companies. Uh, like, uh, first of all, branding side, uh, being able to list in the U.S. and sort of also a good U.S. And, uh, public market and, or capital market sort of uh, uh, citizen is a, a sort of endorsement of the quality of the company itself. And secondly, the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley Act, you know, while it's a kind of cumbersome and, and uh, uh, sort of a lot of work, it's actually a good way to force company to have good governance. And those good governance actually help company avoid a lot of sort of system risk. Operation-wide, every company has its ups and downs, but the good governance actually steals the company in the right direction. That's what we believe.
Pingwei, thank you so much for joining us. Pingwei is a chief financial officer for RYB Education based in Beijing. Uh, this week, it priced uh, an initial public offering in the U.S., New York Stock Exchange, uh, raising $144.3 million. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We are awaiting uh, President Donald Trump. He is going to be speaking before the National Association of Manufacturers in Washington, D.C. Of course, his topic is going to be his tax reform proposal. We will, of course, bring that to you uh, as soon as it begins. Let's turn our attention now to combining two distinct groups, billionaires, people with lots of money, of course, and uh, their companies, as well as how to initiate strategic relationships with other businesses, with startups, for example. And here to help us understand uh, this particular uh, situation is Dimitri Argeropoulos. He is the founder and the chief executive of Avant Global, and he joins us in our 1130 studios. Dimitri, thank you very much for being here. Tell people about Avant Global. What what is its purpose? You know, we take <clears throat> we take the best um, opportunities, uh, and we marry them with the best network that we have. The, you know, whether it's a startup or a very established company, our goal is really singular. We know how to put the right people together. What's the criteria? I mean, because frankly, I mean, everybody <laughs> says we're only going to give you the best investments and we're only going to yes. get you the best investors. I mean, no one right. wants second place. How do you do this? Can you give us an example? People don't understand how to build relationships uh, that often as well as we do. That's all we've done for 20 years. We really... We, we build tremendous value by under, identifying the inefficiencies in, in business and marrying the right people. But can you give us an example sure. so that we understand? Sure, sure, sure. So, for example, we, you know, we recently identified a very um, unique um, consumer product uh, in the Mediterranean, and we locked up that, um, that uh, agreement. We, we got exclusivity uh, on the product. We partnered up with the right distiller. We partnered up with the right distributor. And then we got the, you know, one of the biggest spirits families in the world to back the deal. And we created a tremendous amount of value by, by putting all those pieces together. We did it with the largest um, cookie company in Germany and partnered with the largest co-packer on the West Coast and created an organic cookie brand. Um, you know, in a, in one evening, that's now uh, launching um, with massive distribution because uh, the co-packer has distribution in every major supermarket in America, and the manufacturer doesn't have access to it, but he has one of the biggest factories in in Europe, and has created a very unique product that the market hasn't seen. Dimitri, it sounds like you're a sorcerer. It's sort of the, the job of uh, that, that used to be in banks and has moved increasingly to private equity firms and hedge funds of going out and finding opportunities that are off the grid and that may be smaller than uh, the ones that are financed in public markets. Is that correct? 
Correct. So would, what? how do you go about, what's your process of trying to identify these opportunities other than just, uh, you know, hanging out and well, hearing I what th- people say? <laughs> I think it's, it's so important. You have to have value propositions that are equal or greater on both sides. If, if, if the person, like the cookie guy, the cookie factory, didn't have access to the U.S., the guy in the U.S. didn't have access to those unique uh, ingredients and those qualities that, that that cookie company had. They needed each other, and therefore you created something. You find the inefficiencies of what people don't have, and if you understand people's platforms, you bring in the biggest people. We're, we're principal investors in the deals we do, and we do a lot of things in technology, and we do a lot of things in the consumer space. Those are really our areas, but we have done things in a lot of different areas. For example, we did a deal with T. Boone Pickens, and we brought a billionaire from Asia who wanted to have access to the energy industry. We helped T. Boone divest of some assets, build a great international relationship, which ended up being a massive transaction, and subsequently he was involved in a number of other deals with T. Boone. Can you give us an idea of what is your participation in this? Do you take an equity stake? How do you make money? We're principal investors in all the deals that we do, and we are we own a, a piece of the business. So by bringing people together and creating the value from scratch, uh, we are we we form a new co typically, and that new co we become a shareholder in that. And so we're long term. We have a long term view. Whatever we do, because we believe in the people we're 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 we're, um, we're putting together. We're not we're not brokering introductions for five minutes of, of fees. We're doing it for the long term. Dimitri, and we've been doing it almost twenty years. So, Dimitri, how have you established such a network of billionaires and uh, business owners? That's a great question. I think it, part of it stems from you know just. Uh, very early in my career, I was fortunate enough to intern for and, and volunteer for, um, you know, the former president, Clinton, uh, I, you know, in 1996. Um, I, I was able to, you know, I just it's just in my blood. I, networking was something I've always done since I was a young guy. I, I had some great mentors from, you know, the guy that helped start Motel 6 uh, to, you know, certain well-known uh, business mavens in, in California to, you know, being influenced by people like the former president and other uh, global leaders uh, and really just learning how to build relationships and trust and not being in a rush to create something. Um, People that are so successful have a low um, uh, tolerance for people that are quick to do stuff. If you have a long-term approach and you can create real value and you demonstrate that time and time again, you build a great amount of trust uh, with someone like that, which is something that they have a hard time believing with, believing in people because there's a lot of people that it's hard to trust people when you have everything. People always want something from you. Right. So. Well, I'm wondering, in, in, as, par, uh, as part of the act of building that relationship, have you found that you really only want to bring consumer deals to organizations or people that have a consumer background. You have people that are interested in perhaps in real estate and they only have a real sure, estate background. Sure. And is, does that characterize it? They stick to what they know? Right. I mean, I, I know a little bit about a lot of things. And I, as long as I understand how in, to put the value together and who to put together, it, it becomes very natural at 
doing almost doing this for 20 years. So right, I, but do they ha- but do they have to have expertise in that specific subject matter? So for example, you know, people who have a lot of money, let's say a family office that yeah. has a lot of money, they're not ne- even though it might be a great deal if they don't understand uh, the business or right. they're not have exp- you know, historical experience sure. either with their family or what made them right. uh wealthy, if they don't have that connection, do you kind of say, mm, that's not really going to work because, you know, just because they have a lot of money doesn't mean right. they're going to invest. Well, you, you you want them to be strategic, uh, of course, but sometimes you want also family offices to participate. And if they believe in the track record of the people we're putting together, they're 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 investing or co-investing with us because they believe in the in that in that strategy in their in their track record. Yeah. Is there uh, any anecdote that you could share that uh, that you can describe how long a deal takes to make? Because you talk about this idea of you know not wanting to do a quick turnaround. How long can it take to seed a deal to make it happen? You mentioned one that happened overnight, but yeah. I mean, there's got to be something that took but, a long time to you know come sure. to fruition. I mean, you know, building trust is is something you have to have a long term view on. And as long as you have a long-term view on it, it will. It, it, there's a very good chance that it will materialize over time if you continue to bring value. But I do not see, um, you know, deals that just happen like that unless the opportunity is there. And as, since you've built the trust, though, and you've deposited that trust over time, when something ripe happens, it happens very quickly. So I think my suggestion is have a long-term view, be patient, don't be opportunistic. Because if you create value for people, it will naturally happen. Dimitri Argeropoulos, thank you so much for joining us. Dimitri Argeropoulos is founder and chief executive officer of Avant Global, which is based in Santa Barbara. All right. Now, what do CVS, Harley-Davidson, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America all have in common? Well, David Katz, the chief investment officer of Matrix Asset Advisors with more than $750 million under management, thinks that these companies will do pretty well regardless of whatever happens with tax reform. David, thanks for being with us. Nice to be here. So give us the, the thesis. Why are these companies, uh, CVS, pharmaceuticals, uh, pharmacy benefits, Harley-Davidson, of course, uh, motorcycles, and uh, the banking industry, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, what makes them uh, appear on your list of stocks that you think are going to do well? So we like these companies based upon favorable long-term prospects, but most importantly, based on their valuation. So they're good businesses, good outlooks, and they're all selling uh, for well under a market multiple. But what makes them particularly interesting is if you're an investor and you're looking for things that are going to benefit by the new tax plan, if it were to ultimately go through, all of them pay pretty high tax rates. They would get a lot of relief relief from a new tax um, plan, uh, and it would be a significant kick to their earnings. So you'd get an additional catalyst. David, how much can you really trade around a tax plan that is currently still in sketch form? That is a great question. We absolutely would not trade around the tax plan because there's going to be a tremendous amount of changes. There's no assurance that it's going to ultimately happen. Uh, So we would not be uh, using that as an ultimate driver for buying or selling stocks. Uh, We would not make any changes to a portfolio. Uh, So when we recommended these stocks, we're saying we like these companies. We think they're going to do very well over the next six to 12 months regardless. But if you were looking at uh, buying something and a tax play, if the tax plan ultimately goes through, 
um, you, you get the icing on the cake. David, how much are you confident that the tax plan, albeit a sketch of one at this point, could generate the kind of growth that uh, Secretary Treasury, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and President Trump have been saying? Well, realistically, we don't think that that's going to be the case. We think it's a good thing for the economy. It provides a little bit of a tailwind, uh, puts more money in consumers' pocketbooks, hopefully, although we don't have any clue about how that's going to look. Uh, One thing that is clear, however, is it will lower corporate taxes. And if you lower corporate taxes, what that means is more goes to the bottom line, so you have a pickup in earnings. And then from a stock market perspective, higher earnings generally will lead to higher stock prices. So we think it's ultimately good for the economy, but we don't uh, have any confidence that the lower taxes are going to accelerate growth to a point that it becomes tax neutral or revenue neutral. Uh, But we do think ultimately it's good for the overall economy if they can get something through. David, uh, tell us about the JCI. I want to know what you you think about specific stocks like Johnson Controls. So Johnson Controls is an industrial company. They've remade themselves in the last year with acquisitions. Uh, The new management of the combined company has not done a particularly good job. So actually, they disappointed this year. They're one of the few industrials that did. And one of their disappointments was they did a particularly poor job in terms of cash flow. Uh, Since then, they've changed the CEO. We think the new CEO is very motivated, uh, very competent, and we think that their focus is going to be on synergies from the combination that they made last year. Uh, and making sure that the cash flow approximates or gets much closer to what their earning stream is. And if that's the case, we think the stock easily has 25 to 35% upside over the next 12 months. David, real quick, is there anything that you've recently soured on as a potential uh, stock? Well, not so much soured on, but one thing that we would strongly advise investors against is putting new money into utilities. Uh, investors have been seeking yield, uh, so utilities are interesting on that basis. But if you look at them on a valuation basis, uh, many utilities are selling between 18 and 21 times earnings. They normally sell at 15 times earnings. So if you've been fortunate, you've owned utilities, uh, we would declare victory, take some of that money off the table, and we'd prefer the baby or the telecom companies like a variety. Verizon um, or a AT&T, uh, which have a little bit higher yields, but sell at 12 and 13 times earnings rather than 20 times earnings. Uh, and even some consumer product companies where their yields are pretty competitive, uh, you're paying a little bit more, but we think the prospects are, are pretty good for them. David Katz, thank you so much for joining us. David Katz is Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Advisors, which is based in New York City. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, 
and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.